Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week, we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So in the second half of the show, I'm glad to say we are going to be addressing more of our listener questions. Uh, we did this once before, but uh, we have plenty more to address, so stick around for a spectrum of topics. But first, we want to do something more from the news, as always, and the number there is $4 billion, as in $4 billion. That is the estimated cost of a single launch of America's new rocket, which it's using as part of the Artemis program, that is NASA's attempt to bring U.S. astronauts back to the moon and eventually beyond. The Artemis program is years behind schedule and billions over budget. Total spent so far, $40 billion. The first four launches will cost $4 billion apiece. The worry here, that level of spending is not sustainable. The first launch of the rocket was scheduled for this past Monday, August 29th. That was delayed, and now it seems, as far as we know as we record this, that the launch will be taking place on Saturday, September 3rd. But this is obviously a, a very pricey venture, and so we thought we'd try to take a look at the economics behind these rocket launches. So, Adam, the new rocket that was developed here is, is called the SLS rocket. It's being described as the most powerful rocket ever made. Just curious if you could tell us how much it costs to produce and operate these kinds of rockets. And this was a public project, but is this something that private companies could have been able to develop on their own if they had to? It's a truly uh, expensive undertaking, this. Um, the overall development cost for the SLS is originally slated at about $18 billion. It came in over budget at $23 billion. So it's extremely expensive, and to that extent, a rather old-school rocket. It's actually known as a legacy technology because it's uh, descended from the space shuttle program. And even if you look at it, the colors are reminiscent of the, those of us old enough to remember regular space shuttle launches. It's got that distinctive orange-colored rocket in the middle, rocket engine in the middle. And it's indeed like a lineal descendant of the program that was at first uh, um, you know, cancelled by the Bush administration in 2004, uh, revived in the form of the so-called Constellation Project, which was then cancelled by the Obama administration in 2011. And the SLS is the sort of tattered remnant of NASA's classic uh, rocket program that goes all the way back to the 1960s. So it's really old school technology and very expensive. So this new rocket, in addition to being very powerful, is also apparently only meant for single use. Uh, and it just struck me that that might be incredibly wasteful. I mean, I, I know that there are rocket projects out there that are trying to make rockets reusable. Would that have been possible in this case? And would 
that I guess been a more efficient way to pursue this kind of rocket launch? It absolutely is, and this is the direction that Elon Musk's team has gone in. Um, it saves an enormous amount of cost if you can recycle key components. And that's one of the hallmarks, really, of this old-fashioned technology that NASA's found itself committed to and unable to break away from. I mean, the pork barrel politics involved in this are really quite mind-blowing. I mean, basically, this has a great deal to do with the influence of Senator Shelby, who used to chair the Senate Appropriations Committee, who's the senator, senior senator for Alabama, and basically insisted, really, that as the shuttle program was wound down, that the NASA installations in Alabama that have a long history there be continued in some form. And the LS, the SLS rocket is, as it were, the product of that senatorial imperative that, you know, if America goes back to the moon, it shall start from Alabama because that's where the congressional muscle was behind this. So this is in no way a project shaped by the latest thinking about rocket technology or space travel or least cost it truly is a classic product of the budgetary process in US politics and the, the imperative that generates for local interests, regional interests, state level interests to be respected and, and uh, honored essentially through these giant spending programs. I mean, just so I understand, I mean, whether a private alternative is even kind of feasible in a case like this, though, I mean, you mentioned the kind of total development costs here running into the tens of billions of dollars. I, I mean, I've obviously never had to work the math here, but could a private company raise that money to do this development work? Or is this kind of necessarily a kind of pork barrel public works project? Yeah, this is the kind of direction that the new private entrepreneurs are going in, like the so-called Falcon Heavy Rocket, I think has a similar payload. So it isn't a question of public or private here. Um, the future of very heavy lift uh, rocketry may very well lie in the private sector. It's also a question of you know how you how you disassemble the payload, whether you move the whole thing in one piece up into space or whether you break it into smaller parts. So this really does look like a technological pathway selected according to the needs of maintaining a NASA program, its staff, its installations in being rather than um, you know the optimal solutions. And NASA has been quite open about the fact that they're not terribly committed to this rocket as the long-term future of heavy lifting into space. So even as it, well, waits on the launch pad, um, its future may be quite short. So beyond the spending on the rocket, I'm, I'm curious sort of what other costs are involved in this kind of broader Artemis program. I mean, just to look at the labor involved, I mean, how many people are working on a space program like this? I mean, how many people are in the support crew, say, for astronauts? Significant numbers, not gigantic. I mean, NASA employs a total of 18,000 um, civil servants, members of its staff. Of those, a rather tiny proportion are actually moon to Mars, so the SLS uh, wing. But the spending on that program is very significant. I mean, NASA has a long history going all the way back to the 1970s in, of justifying itself in terms of rather... Uh, shall we say, generous estimations of its economic impact. And we, we, you know, we're familiar with the kind of stories about Teflon and the technological spin-off from the Apollo program, but there's also a long, if you like, sort of um, space Keynesianism, a kind of an argument in which NASA spending serves as a stimulus program. And they estimate that every job in NASA itself uh, supports, in the most generous understanding of the word, 17 jobs outside. So NASA actually credits itself with quote unquote, supporting 312,000 jobs in the United States, which I think broadly speaking means that NASA has subcontracting relationships with a large part of the American manufacturing sector, 
a large uh, swath of high-tech engineering firms, all of which in various ways contribute to these very complex machines. It's a non-trivial economic factor, but matters really um, uh, only to local economies to a very significant extent and to individual companies. Uh, Boeing in particular is closely associated with this rocket, but is hardly a macroeconomic factor in its own right. So these rockets represent a, a new kind of technology and they're being used for getting people back to the moon and eventually to Mars, as you mentioned. The stated purpose here is is to advance science, but obviously rockets as a technology have always been also a military technology. So will the advancements developed for this SLS rocket eventually be used for weapons of one kind or another? Well, I mean, absolutely. This connection has always been quite intimate. If you go back to the beginnings of modern rocketry 100 years ago in the 1920s, you know, they were at first rather speculative, um, you know, really literally driven by the fantasies of overwhelmingly young men addicted to science fiction in the 1920s. Uh, but then in the 30s, most notoriously, of course, in Werner von Braun's program um, in what was the Weimar Republic that was then adopted by Nazi Germany after 1933, um, became the vehicle for German military thinking about the potential of ballistic missiles as military weapons. And the first images of the Earth taken from outer space, so from the very edge of the Earth's atmosphere, were taken by cameras positioned at the tip of V2 rockets that were fired rather than on a ballistic curve towards Britain or towards Antwerp, vertically up into the Earth's atmosphere. And we, for the first moment, shortly after World War II, in these science experiments conducted by the Allies saw that image of the Earth's atmosphere that we're now so familiar with. So right the way back to that moment, and both the Soviet and the American rocketry programs descend from that pioneering German ballistic missile program. Bernhard um, von Braun, of course, touring successive American presidents as he had done Adolf Hitler around his, um, his rocket testing grounds. Right now, the logic is rather the other way around. I mean, and this became very much to the fore under the Trump administration when the then chief administrator of the NASA program, uh, Bridenstine, uh, was very vocal in advocating for what became the Space Force, you know, Donald Trump's new um, branch of the American military alongside the Air Force and Navy and the Army. There was now a, a Space Force. And NASA was very active in supporting that because obviously they can see the synergies. If you can build a big branch of the Pentagon that's associated with this program, that's going to be good for space. Not only that, however, they also uh, were pushing, NASA was also pushing the idea of a space equivalent of the Coast Guard. So something more like a kind of police force for space. So not purely military, state on state, but rather a American-backed policing force. And what would it do up there? Well, it would manage conflicts between private space activity, which is becoming more and more prominent. So when as space privatizes, you need, as it were, space police to deal with civil conflicts, if you like, up there in space. And, and NASA like, wanted a chunk of this action as well. So law enforcement and national defense are on the radar of the um, space enthusiasts in the current moment. So finally, to zoom out a bit in looking at the Artemis program and that that is um, trying to develop a long-term human presence on the moon, curious, like, who decides what kinds of material resources are, are necessary for this kind of, essentially, what's a kind of colony, even if it's not a permanent one? I mean, are economists ever consulted by NASA to discuss the framework for this kind of colonization in space? 
That's a fascinating question. I mean, I had some fun Googling lunar economies, um, which, was, which was great. I mean, as far as I can tell, and, I, and I, it'd be great if listeners could correct us, but I'm not sure that NASA employs any economists. So if you go on their human resources website, they announce we're more than astronauts. We're scientists, engineers, IT specialists, human resources specialists, accountants, writers, technicians, and many other kinds of people, but clearly noticeably absent from this list are economists are not there. So maybe they do. They're not a very large team. But that hasn't stopped a really vivid and rather imaginative debate going on right now about lunar economics. I mean, you know, and no lesser authority than PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers, the, you know, the global accountancy and management consultancy firm, issued a major report in uh, 2021 last year on the potential for a lunar economy, which will be based essentially on the three pillars of uh, science, tourism and mining. And so those are the thought to be the direction in which this is going to travel. Uh, they estimate, you know, the way these sorts of management consultancy reports do, that by 2040, the lunar economy, the lunar market will amount to 142 billion. They outline the range of actors that are involved in this space. Um, sorry, no pun intended. Uh, all of the major national and transnational space programs are in partnership with private actors. So, and there is a there's a race on, you know, to secure claims essentially to assets on the moon and there's there's active planning now of how to establish you know relatively permanent settlements uh talk about you know whether you're going to do 3d printing of structures that will then you know rather than flying the whole structure out there you fly a 3d printer and raw materials and make the structure on the moon um there's talk of uh, lunar power stations that are going to be necessary to sustain life clearly water and oxygen are going to be crucial so it's really gathering some fairly remarkable momentum right now. There's a there's a moon markets report, <laughs> believe it or not, which identified 70 commercial lunar missions being prepared for the next decade. So watch this space. So this is a topic that ones and twos needs to return to in a few years time to see, you know, when the first uh, real commercial development uh, begins, it'll be something to follow. Yeah, I like this assumption that also this colony needs to be profitable or at least break even. You know, I guess the assumption is that otherwise people on Earth would be resenting these deadbeats on the moon taking our resources from Earth back up there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it follows um, but... the classic pattern of, of <laughs> yeah. imperialism, though, right? You know, imperialism has always been driven by the yeah. promise of huge profits that, you know, are going to be unlocked when you get there. Yeah, we have to extract. If anything, we're, yeah, it's going to be extractive. We're going to get the moon's resources back to the earth anyway yeah i guess if we have uh, any grad students or undergrads even you know lunar economics something you may want to already decide to specialize in um but yeah okay we, we we do leave to leave it there for now but stick around for a whole bunch of other topics in our listener question segment hi this show is sponsored by better help so there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc., and uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, in, in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And 
I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hey, so as I said at the top of the show, we uh, are going to be doing something a little different this week. We are going to be answering your questions rather than uh, riffing on one of our normal data points. As plenty of you are aware, I'm hoping you can send us your questions anytime via the Ones and Twos podcast page at foreignpolicy.com. So it's been a few months now. You've been flooding us uh, with plenty of great questions. And so now we are devoting this uh, entire segment to answering some of them. Our first listener question comes from Matthew Enns. He asks, Hi, love the podcast. You said that raising interest rates uh, lowers inflation awfully because it reduces the amount of the, the money in the pockets of you know p- people, particularly well-off people, I guess I think it's in the top 10%, and reduces their buying power. If that's the case, why doesn't raising taxes on people, particularly people who are high income earners or have high amounts of wealth, also lower inflation? So, hi, Matthew, this is a great question, or rather it's a great inference, and you're absolutely right. It should have precisely that effect. And um, indeed, Keynes have long advocated taxation precisely on these grounds, not to balance the budget, right? So taxes as a way of raising revenue to cover your expenditure, but taxes as a way of regulating the balance of the economy at large, the macroeconomy, getting the overall level of aggregate demand right, and indeed ensuring that it comes from the sources, the people, the households that you want it to come from. And a tax, whether on income or wealth, on the top earning groups would be disinflationary. To, there are two offsetting effects here. Um, high income earners spend a smaller fraction of their income, so taxing them has a proportionally lower effect on demand. But the rich spend a great deal more overall than poorer households. So changing their consumption by even a relatively small percentage has a relatively larger impact on aggregate demand. And if the elasticity, which is what economists call, so the reaction of expenditure to the tax is not large enough, then pay just up the tax until you get the effect that you want. Indeed, I mean, I would argue that the ideal mode of inflation control from this point of view would probably be a kind of progressive redistributive tax that raised incomes and wealth at the bottom, enabling hard-pressed households to deal with the higher prices so that they don't suffer a severe hit to their already stressed standard of living, but overall reduced aggregate demand by imposing a heavy tax on the top. 
And in the 50s and 60s, when you know, sort of technocratic Keynesianism in its first flush of excitement was at its height, there were experiments along these lines to introduce taxes that could be tinkered with quite quickly. The, the problem in the present day is that adjusting taxes is a congressional matter, and we know how infernally difficult it is to develop majorities for any kind of tax proposal in Congress. Inflation is something you have to tackle on a weekly, monthly kind of time frame, and that's not how long it takes to do fiscal policy in the US. And so instead, you resort to a mechanism like interest rates, that can be adjusted much more quickly. And insofar as interest rates, that is the Fed increasing interest rates, knocks equity and financial markets, the prices of stocks and shares and bonds and so on, it has a de facto redistributive effect because as you remembered quite correctly, it is the top 10% of American society that owns all of the equity, right? They, they have a vastly disproportionate share in the stock market. So if the Fed's actions send the S&P 500 into a, into, a, into a downward spiral, then you are effectively clawing back wealth from that group. And now it goes into thin air, right? It just evaporates. It's not as it were in the coffers of the government at that point. Um, but it certainly uh, addresses, it redresses balance sheets and will make those higher income and higher wealth households presumably less excited about spending. So yes, it should be disinflationary. The logic here, your connection between the monetary and the fiscal side is, is absolutely watertight, makes perfect sense. Just to follow up, I mean, I'm assuming the Fed itself also appreciates this point about taxes being disinflationary. Yes. So, I mean, do they ever argue for raising taxes? Do they advocate it? Maybe that would uh, help uh, push Congress in that direction if they stood up and said, well, the economy would be better off if we raise taxes instead of resorting to interest rate hikes? So this is the delicate issue of the coordination or cooperation between fiscal and monetary policy. And you see this more openly expressed when the aim of the game is to boost the economy. So we saw this very loudly articulated in 2020 during the COVID crisis, where both the ECB and the Fed basically pleaded for fiscal action to go along with what they were doing. The other way around, when it's a question of imposing pain, is obviously much more politically sensitive, because what you're basically saying is, can somebody else do the unpopular stuff rather than us? And the central bankers are a little bit wary of doing that because it then becomes a question of independence, right? Because if central banks are supposed to be independent from politics, then you think kind of in reverse, that also implies that politics is independent of central banks. And so central banks shouldn't be issuing instructions to elected politicians. That's the kind of game. But yes, behind the scenes, absolutely everyone is clear about the fact that if fiscal policy is acting, as it currently is in the US, one of the reasons why this isn't a huge topic is that in fact, fiscal policy right now is quite contractionary in 2022, first half of 2022 in the US, because the big stimulus programs of last year are rolling off. And unless you renew them and double down, you actually end up with a negative fiscal effect because the stimulus that was there the last year goes away. And so on net, that's a negative impact. And that's, that's the world that we're in right now. So the Fed has got little to complain about from that side uh, in any case. The ECB is treading a much more delicate line here because they're worried about scaring the bond markets about the viability of Italian finance. Hmm. So that's a incredibly hot political potato. But yes, absolutely. This, this set of connections, which uh, Matthew has mapped out for us, is really at the heart of the politics of economic policy. Uh, the next question comes from Matteo Sanchez. Hi, Cameron and Adam. My question is, in our current economy, where one can find monopolies and oligopolies almost in every relevant sector, why do we still use perfect competition models to understand our reality instead of monopolistic competition models? Thank you so much for answering the question. 
Hi, Matteo. So this is a great question. It's also slightly technical. So perhaps we should start by explaining the difference that you assume and, and you're quite, you're absolutely correct about. So perfect competition models are one of the most commonly taught sort of workhorse models in microeconomics courses. So economics courses, which are directed not towards understanding the economy as the whole, but businesses and markets, individual businesses and markets. And a perfect competition model is one which describes a situation of, if you like, maximum competition. I mean, technically, it, it assumes, and literally, I mean, mathematically, it assumes an infinite number of firms, um, which is kind of hard to wrap your head around. So just imagine a very unthinkably large number, and all of them are price takers. So the market imagined as some rather kind of abstract mechanism for settling the price that governs what the price is, and firms then orientate their decisions around that. But the firms themselves do not individually influence the price. So it's a bit like, uh, you know, a kind of market trader type model. Uh, imagine you're a very small supplier to Amazon and you're selling some widget that thousands of other companies also supply and you just position yourself in that kind of a space or um, that kind of a market. They're, they're not actually very common in the real world. You also then have to assume that these markets exist not just for one good in one place, but in a sense are general everywhere, because otherwise the imperfections in other markets would intrude into your the market that you've defined as perfect. And when you put all of that together, you have what's called a general equilibrium model. And if those exhibit all of these properties, in other words, there is an abstract price setting mechanism, which everyone takes as a price and then orientates themselves around it and has no influence over it. And these prices exist for all goods over all time periods and literally to infinity, then certain things follow, which make economists quite happy. Namely, there will be an equilibrium. It will be unique. It will be optimal. It will be stable. In other words, you can then make this claim that the world is as good as it could possibly be because of the market. <laughs> the problem, of course, is that there is no world like this in the world. So you know, if, if the world were like this, you might be able to plausibly maintain that claim. But Matteo is completely right to say that, in fact, you know, no economy really resembles this. Um, uh, in all major sectors of the world uh, the economy, you have a discrete number, often quite a small number of producers, which in fact do engage in price setting. There are a small number, either because they exploit regulation to establish monopoly positions, or they are giving aggressive uh, market behavior, or they exploit technical advantages, economies of scale, which mean that the bigger you are, the more efficient you are. So you race your competitors to get as big as possible, say in car manufacturing, for instance. And that means, by definition, you can only have a small number of companies engaged in this head-on-head, -head, you know, Toyota versus VW, who can be the biggest in the world. And if that's the case, then these firms don't have some abstract market to orientate themselves towards, and then they have to set prices themselves. And then, frankly, in terms of modeling this, all hell breaks loose. So one reason that economists are loath to use these kind of models is that they're very indeterminate. You can have multiple equilibria. They're not necessarily efficient. In other words, they don't meet the criterion of maximization of profit or efficiency in some simple sense. They're not stable. You can oscillate between one and another type of equilibrium. All of the nice mathematical properties that you like to generate from these kind of models basically break up. Now, in fairness to economists, they're all perfectly aware of this, and this is the cutting edge of economic research and has been for decades. And standard New Keynesian macroeconomic models, for instance, incorporate imperfect competition as price-setting mechanisms. It's one of the ways in which they generate the prediction there will be unemployment, for instance. So at the technical level, economists are wrestling with this problem. In fairness to them, I think it's important to say this. But Matteo is right that in published discourse, in some societies at least, um, there is a kind of pervasive belief that the market is best. 
And there's also a kind of pervasive belief that a science called economics shows you that the market's best. And to that extent, and to the extent that that combination of ideas is actually held, it's just simply ideological. It's motivated thinking by a bunch of people who have real interests in, as it were, trying to convince themselves or other people that this is true, because there's really nothing in economics that would uh, persuade you that this is the case, not, not serious uh, analysis of modern economies. That's a, it's essentially a politics pursued by means of a particularly crude reading of what a certain sort of economics once upon a time in some textbook somewhere said. But it's certainly, it's not fair to economics to say that that is, as it were, how they would advocate us seriously describing the world. They're not blind to reality to that, uh, to that extent by any means. A very comprehensive answer to an interesting question. Um, the next question comes from Kathy Wagner. Hi, Cameron. Hi, Adam. I am currently participating in organizing a labor union at my university, and I want to ask for Adam's thoughts on how the decline in unions has affected workers in the economy overall and what he thinks about the current surge in organizing and where it might lead for workers. Thank you so much. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for listening. Um, th and you raise a really fundamental question, one that could hardly be more topical, because there's a lot of talk right now about inflation and uh, the rapid rate of inflation we've had now in Europe and the United States for the last few months. And this awakens memories of the 1970s, the last time that we had really rapid inflation and uh, have a piece out in the, the paper issue, the latest paper issue, foreign policy on this issue. And that analogy is kind of compelling up to a point. You know, we've got a war in Ukraine. We had a war in the Middle East in 1973. We have disruptions to global energy markets. We have food prices and, and oil prices surging. And so economists have been asking themselves, oh, wow, you know, we headed into a repeat of the 1970s. And if you want a short answer, to that, it's the question that you're asking. In other words, um, what is the difference here in the power structure in the labor market? Because in the 1970s, organized labor trade unions on both sides of the Atlantic were powerful enough to actually act as drivers of inflation. This created what was called the wage price spiral. And um, this creates first, second round effects. Economists really are terrified of this because you create a spiral in society of empowered social actors demanding adjustments of their wages and prices so as to compensate for the overall shift in the cost of living. And if you want one way of defining the difference between that moment in the 70s, the last great moment really of organized labor struggle in either the United States or Europe between the 70s and the early 1980s and the present moment, it is the decline of organized labor. Because what we're seeing right now across uh, both in the US and the European economy, though we see rising wages in both cases, they are not keeping up so far with prices. So we're actually seeing a very severe fall in real wages, wages adjusted for the cost of living. And there are indeed encouraging signs, obviously, of unionization uh, in the US at this moment. Um, most dramatically, of course, at Amazon and at Starbucks to sort of stand out employers of the modern economy. The question really is whether this will be sustained. And if you read the analysis of the current situation by central bankers, uh, by, by enlightened central bankers, intelligent, smart, far-thinking people, one of the really shocking things is how openly they talk about the need to end inflation. Why? Because they're afraid that the inflationary push will actually stimulate efforts to organize and unionize workers. Because from their point of view, as soon as that happens, you've got a flywheel, which is much harder to control. You have the threat of a 1970s-style wage price spiral. So there is a kind of meta-struggle going on as activists like yourself are trying to organize workers on the ground. Policymakers at the top are literally trying to calibrate anti-inflationary policy fast and determined enough 
to undercut the economic pressures that will put wind under the wings of your organizing movement because they are aware of the nature of this struggle. It's really, and then what's amazing about this when you read these reports, and these are genuinely liberal minded, broad minded uh, economists, they are completely unconscious of the, of the implication of what they're saying that that anti-inflation policy is a kind of indirect way of draining the energy out of the organizing movement because the organizing movement would permanently change the structure of the economy. And that's not something that the managers of macroeconomic policy in the current moment would welcome at all because as far as they're concerned, the 1990s, the so-called period of the great moderation where union power was at a, at a very low level is, is the ideal Okay, that'll do it for this special listener questions edition of Ones and Twos. We are very grateful for everyone who reached out to us. Uh, As a reminder, we check pretty often for questions. So if you have a question for Adam, please head to the Ones and Twos page at foreignpolicy.com. You'll find instructions there on how to record and upload your question. Anyway, go to our website and leave more. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Tews, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TOOZE at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone 
from local fishers to nuclear physicists on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.